0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Comics Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Woke, a host of the channel, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Chris Bishop about his book, Medievalist Comics in the American Century, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2016. Dr. Chris Bishop is an honorary lecturer at the Australian National University. He's published widely on the history of late antiquity and early Middle Ages, as well as on comic book studies. In 2012, Bishop was awarded a Kluge Fellowship at the Library of Congress in the United States for his research, which led to the publication of this book. From its genesis in 1930s to the present, Bishop surveys the medievalist comic, its stories, characters, settings, and themes drawn for the European Middle Ages. Hal Foster's Prince Valiant emerged from an America at odds with monarchy, but still in love with King Arthur. The Green Arrow remains the continuation of a long fascination with Robin Hood that has become as central to the American identity as was to the British. The Mighty Thor reflects the legacy of Germanic migration into the United States. The rugged individualism of Conan the Barbarian owes more to the Western cowboy than it does to the continental knight-errant. In the narrative of Red Sonia, we can trace a parallel history of feminism. Bishop regards these comics not merely happenstance, but each success, such as Prince Valiant and the Mighty Thor, or failure, as in Beowulf, Dragon Slayer, as a result and an indicator of certain American preoccupations amid a larger cultural context. Intrinsically modernist paragons of pop culture ephemera, American comics have ironically continued to engage with the European Middle Ages. Bishop illuminates some of the ways in which we use an imagined past to navigate the present and plot some possible futures as we valiantly shape a new century. The main takeaway is that the medieval is not past, it is not even medieval, but rather the use of medievalist elements sheds light on contemporary issues. In this interview, Dr. Bishop talks about the uses and abuses of classical and medieval texts in popular media, the value of studying flops, and how we might all misunderstand history for our own reassurance. Dr Chris Bishop welcome to the show uh Chris I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself a classicist uh researching comics
0: well thanks Elizabeth thanks for having me on your show um how did I end up? how do I find myself um researching comics I've I've been a comic reader for a long time I always liked comics as a kid um and I suppose that what happened is, at some point in my uh, study of history, in that in that trajectory, I became really interested in popular culture. I'm really interested in the way that popular culture reflects the history um, of the societies that create it. And I think that if you want to construct a less elitist view of history, obviously you have to look at at pop culture. You're not necessarily interested in it as a um you know a literary art although obviously some comic books are you know a literary art but i'm interested in them just as um, a piece of um uh an indication of where a society finds itself and so comic books are really good because you have um, a whole series of ideas expressed in them and then you have a little indicator based on their their, um how much they sell how many of copies are uh, produced so I can actually say here's a here's a copy comic that came out and this is the year it came out and in that year it sold you know 100,000 copies or 20,000 copies or it sold only five copies and then it stopped and so I can say well maybe there's a little bit we can use that as a bit of a, a cultural barometer Um does this uh, the popularity of this comic tell us something about the society which consumed it, or does its unpopularity tell us something about the the rejection of it by that society? So I thought it was a really interesting piece of pop culture to go into, um, to start looking at the histories um, of of the societies that produced them. So that's I think that's what got me into it, um, and as a classicist, I I don't even know if I am a classicist, but. Um, because classics is a really privileged sort of a position. Um, I I obviously uh, taught classics at the Australian National University for quite a few years. I've I've recently finished doing that, um, and I like it very much. And I still continue to read classical literature, but I am um, I'm really interested in the ways I suppose that our construction of a classical and a non-classical past is used to shape present national identities yeah and so one of the things i think is really interesting and 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 this is a bit of a, a thing about my research generally i i've published things on medievalist texts but i've also published things on, on classicist texts and i think if anything i would say within western political ideation and uh, well, i guess that the, the western identity is this constant conflict i think between medieval medievalism and classicism and i think it's really i i what I tend to find, you know, just like, and this is, we can, you know, dig down on this a bit deeper, but in a general broad sort of a brushstroke, I think that uh, in the history of of Europe and European societies, that when they're attempting to establish um, nationalism, they like medievalist texts. they really they're really useful to use as part of a nationalist um, narrative. But then, as they expand into empires, they prefer classical texts. Um, And then that justifies um, imperial expansion. And then when empires break up, little bits of those empires then reestablish themselves with medievalism to establish their own national identity. And so I find this really interesting backwards and forwards between the use of classicism and the use of medievalism in modern European and European based societies to justify modern nationalism. So that's, and, and then I could use things like comics. I've, the book we're talking about is about medievalist comics, but I've also done lots of papers about how uh, comics have used classic uh, classical imagery as well to establish certain certain things. So I think that's how I yeah a bit of a ramble, but there you go. Yep.
1: Perfect, perfect, and very interesting points, uh, which I, I wish I, that kind of needs like a whole extra uh, episode to talk about, but we'll we'll try to touch on some of that today, um, and could you get us started off with kind of a layman's definition of medieval list and is that swords and sorcery, is that the medieval, uh, where do we see that?
0: Yeah, it's such a difficult one, isn't it? the minute you start and you're really aware of this, of course, being an academic, the minute you start to use specific, specific terms, people like to sort of start to argue about what that term exactly means. And so one of the things, it's funny in the book, in this book, uh, uh, Medivus Comics in the American Century, one of the things I've tried to do at the very beginning was to distance myself from a, a particular ideology of words. So, Yes, it's called Medievalist Comics, and I give a bit of a definition. But one of the things I said in the in the opening is, like, I want to get away from the idea of medievalism because it's a really contested issue and, and what medievalism is and what neo-medievalism is and what academics want to fight about there. And so right at the beginning of the book, I said, I'm not going to talk about those things. I, I gave a brief few pages about, you know, where people stand on those and why it's so contested and how um, – academic terms, like, you know, studies in medievalism, which I've published academic um, uh, papers for, you know, spend issue upon issue arguing about which is which. And uh, I was really amused to see that some of the criticism I received was that I didn't then go into those terms. Like I literally start off saying, I'm not going to talk about those terms because I think they'll just obscure what I'm going to talk about. And then people said, why didn't you talk more about those? I'm like, because I didn't want to talk about those. So... I realise these things are very contested and I understand that. I suppose when I talk about what I want to say about medievalist is that it's basically the conscious use of an often imagined medievalist past, but we need to understand that everything we write about ourselves is still about ourselves. So whatever we use about the past, whether it's a classical past or medieval medievalist past, it's imagined. It's it's what, we, what we're, we're trying to imagine it was like, but we're probably trying to say something about who we are now so swords and sorcery absolutely it could be anything i think anything that imagines itself as medieval whatever that could possibly mean so and and there's also that big dynamic in in the in medievalist texts i suppose and i think this comes out in the book between um the i guess the utopian and the dystopian medieval so if i want to imagine that my modern world is good And getting better and the march of history is going on i like to bring up a dystopic medieval past where everything was dirty and horrible and everyone's teeth fell out by the time they were 12 and they went blind and everyone had dreadful lives if i want to say that my modern world is falling into rack and ruin then i'm going to reach for a medieval past that was beautiful and idyllic and everybody sat around in sunny glades with unicorns and and all that sort of stuff so um Neither of those imagined pasts are true in a, in a real sense, but we're we're using them to try and navigate a present. So anything which looks back to an imagined medieval past, I guess I would say, would be medievalist.
1: All right, thank you for that. That that gets us oriented. So uh, to also get us oriented, uh, could you please introduce some of the comics you examined and give us some background on how you chose them? I th- I really liked your selection in this book. Did you? Why did you like the selection? Yes, very much. I I like the balance between the popular and especially the unpopular in there. And uh, we will talk (laughs) about that hopefully a little bit more. Um, There's
0: so much you could talk about. There's actually so many choices you can make. And I went through lots and lots of, uh, you know, when you're doing these books, I I went through lots and lots of uh, research, look at different things. And I found, I suppose, that a lot of what I wanted was comic comic histories that told particular stories. So a lot of the stories will be the same about why a particular medieval past is used. So I wanted to look for things that told a unique story and um because I was for that project attached to the Kluge Center in Washington at the Congressional Library I was really interested in American stories why did America a country which had no experience of a medieval past why did they decide to um to use that to explain or how did that interrelate with what they were experiencing in the 20th century and of all of all times you know the 20th century um the american century is as as you know (laughs) many like to call it um this era of great progress for america and movement forward and moving into a greater imperium why do they look back to a medieval past that wasn't even theirs um to come up with an essence of various times and so i was really interested in that so um, I guess I ended up looking at things like uh, I was interested in the whole idea of Camelot and how how why would an American president like um, John F. Kennedy imagine that his was Camelot? Why was Camelot important to them? Um, so I was interested in the Arthurian thing. And then for the sort of epitome of that, you know, the uh, the golden age of America and the golden age of Camelot coalescing into into Prince Valiant. That sort of that, that was seemed like a logical thing for me to do. Um, I really like the stories that are told about migration into America. And so Thor, the Thor comics, was a really good example to then have a look at German migration, uh, German and Scandinavian migration into America. Um, A lot of people even in America don't understand how intense German migration into America was. And at the exact same moment, America begins to imagine medieval past and by that i mean america moves into this period of medievalism after the american civil war um a lot of people are surprised to find out that german immigrants were the single biggest ethnic group that fought in the american civil war um you know following the situation into the economic collapse in germany in the middle of the 19th century millions of them are immigrating into america they find themselves there as a civil war breaks out um, and and they enlist and you know they're they're a massive part of it. and you know and then it, it doesn't stop there I think by the turn of the century there was something like a I think there was more than a hundred German language newspapers operating in America and and all these big names like you know if you think about you know, Budweiser and Boeing and all these big industrial names they're they're all German and so I was interested in looking at that uh, uh, something that had this uh, this tradition of, of uh, of Odin and, you know, Woden and all this sort of thing. And, and, and it comes out of America, which is actually looking back at its Germanic past. So that was really interesting for me. Um, what else? I was really interested in the stories that things like Red Sonia uh, told us about, um, tides of feminism in, in American thought. Um, and so I, I found that a really, and, and, of all the comic books I looked at, it seemed to be so precisely tied to those histories. When feminism was um, w- was waxing, then it, it's pop, you know, it was selling really well. And then, as feminism would would you know have this massive kickback against it, then the the, mega- the the comic would fail and all these sorts of things. So I just found it really interesting. If, if what I'm trying to say is that these the consumption of these things tell us something about. Our, our, our our present lives then i look for those examples that seem to really tie closely to that
1: yeah and that uh brings me to one of my favorite case studies you have in the book you highlighted beowulf dragon slayer as an exception which proves the rule you say and these are of course uh beautiful illustrated uh comics uh, illustrators richard villamante right uh but I, I i love his work so much so uh, I I, I really like the style. Um, so I think it's across was a so... lot of other
0: comics. Like he does a lot of really successful comics. It's a, so the, the style itself would have been real, the, the audience would have loved it. They would have known those things, you know? So yeah, he's selling a lot of comics, but not exactly. this one.
1: Exactly. Mm. Yeah, which makes it so interesting. So could you explain how this, uh, this series stands out in the uh, corpus that you're working with and why you chose to analyze it? Oh,
0: for sure. And that's the thing. So you've got this, you've got an artist who's really famous and doing really great work. You've got Michael Arslan, who who is really successful in so many other things himself as well. Um and um, you know, incredibly, incredibly successful, which gives him enough power then within DC Comics to say, oh, I've got this dream. I really want to launch, you know, Beowulf. And you've got a situation where I mean, you've you've got this situation where um, you've got a lot of people, American universities have this massive post-war boom. Of course, thanks to the GI bill, um, you know, they they've got all these American service personnel that they're going to uh, demobilize back in America. and so to just to, to make sure that they don't just go back into a, a suddenly depressed economy, America introduces, introduces the GI bill and part of that is a whole lot of um, of these soldiers can go to university. And that leads to this massive boom in universities where suddenly the small elite operation could suddenly... I mean, this is virtually where things like the lecture hall are invented because now a university class isn't me and my four students sitting around in a room um, discussing literature. Suddenly I'm standing in front of a hall of 500 students. And and, and this is an aside too, but I find one of the really interesting things is when America introduced, introduced the GI Bill, they really thought that what happened is a lot of the service personnel would use the chance to get a free education to go and do trades and things like that, but they hadn't counted on the, on the cachet which university education held for a lot of people. And so a lot of people, then a lot of ordinary men and some women decided what they're going to do. They were going to, they were going to get something that was completely unavailable to them before this. They're going to get a university education and they're going to do things like liberal arts. They're going to do things like literature and history and philosophy and um, so suddenly leave, it, it it completely changes all of this sort of thing, and um, and we could talk lots about that too. But that's I guess another thing as well. But what I find really interesting about that is that then you get a lot of people studying, uh, and this is where classics comes in. Like classics is one of the big beneficiaries of this. By 1960, um, you've got something like sixty thousand Americans teaching Latin, because. Yeah, exactly. Because what had happened is that they'd gone to university, done classics, they'd they'd learned Latin, and then they're out in schools and all this sort of thing. It's it's an amazing, you know, you know, a, a blossoming of all these sorts of things, as well as medieval things. There's all sorts of stuff going on, and so what happens is that I mean, this is where you get this is where you get penguins from, as in. Not the birds, the books, right? Because what's happening after this is that they realise that suddenly there's this this massive uh, population of, of university students, um, and they need cheap paperback versions of these classic books. And so Penguin starts selling, and you've got all this all, all this classical literature, and all these you know new translations of of the Iliad, the Odyssey, but also English classics like Chaucer, but also Beowulf and aslan had gone to university he'd studied um, he'd studied uh, beowulf and he went like oh, this is the classic english text if we can't make it you know it's a great story it's a cracking read and everyone's going to want to read this right like what's not to like there's dragons there's ogres there's a hero it's fantastic and so he gets together with a great this this great comic book writer gets together with this great artist and they produce this this comic which just cannot sell I just find it fascinating. Like, why can't it sell? Like, it's, it's just, I'm just amazed by it. But I think the problem is, like, one of the problems that I go into is that it's it's probably not working on the level that people are actually studying it. And it's, it's you know, you've taken something which they know and you've, you've turned it into too much sword and sorcery. They, um, they can get their sword and sorcery in something like Conan or something like that. They don't want to see this English epic tradition turned into a superhero story. But, um, yeah, it's a very complex thing. And I'm just, I'm fascinated, you know, how can you take Thor and turn that into this comic book, which goes for hundreds of issues and has now produced all these movies and all this, why is Thor successful, but Beowulf not? It's just really interesting, I think.
1: Yeah, fascinating. I I find it really fascinating. Uh, And uh, what are some other takeaways from this methodology of including the failures alongside the successful popular works? Because we so often hear about the big successes, the popular of the popular media. Um, So I, I really appreciated the looking at the failures. How can we do more of that?
0: Yeah, well, I guess that goes back to what I was saying before. One of the great things about comics is that this is uh this isn't about a worthiness. It's not about literature, it's not about anybody saying, oh, this thing has to be done, so we'll put money into it. These are just pure capitalistic companies just going, we're gonna produce this, and if we make money from it, we'll make more. And if we don't make money from it, it's dead. We'll we'll get rid of it. And so what I love about the failure is it it shows you if you can't, you know, if you put something out there, you've got about probably um, at this stage, in the sixties, the seventies, even the eighties, before you get people um, actually directly subscribing for comics, these things are going out on newsstands. You've got maybe six issues. If by issue six it's not moving, it's gone. It's it's finished. And so we can actually get a sense of what the general public is thinking about these things. So it's not just about whether it's worthy, and therefore we put money into it, and it sells. Just if it's got no, you know, they'll do it as much as they can. They'll advertise it. They'll push it. They'll put good artists on it. They'll put good writers on it. But if they can't sell it, companies are not interested. DC, Marvel, big companies, they just go, nah, that's it. You've had your chance. Do me another Batman.
1: And this brings up an interesting question, or I think is an interesting question. So these, for example, comic book adaptations of Beowulf might not be uh, selling off of the newspaper stands, uh, but we get a lot of, academic literature about it. A lot of teachers are interested in this kind of thing um, in order to take them to the classroom and use them as a platform for teaching. So if I can ask, at least from how I see it, there seems to be a tension between the medieval literary canon and successful canonic medieval comics. Conan sells beowulf does not so um how can we scholars uh understand our the difference between these favorites the best of lifts and then when we talk about the canon proper and vice versa
0: i honestly don't know i honestly don't know it's something i think about but i i can't come up with the answers i think maybe the answer lies somewhere like i was sort of hinting at before there's some sort of I wonder with Beowulf if it if it in in particular with Beowulf, has it been that the thing has been forced to carry all sorts of nationalistic expectations and and and, and concepts? And so it can't it just can't manage popular entertainment. It's too worthy. And so when I introduce something like that, it's you know, is, is that the problem? I, I go like, oh, you're ruining my my you know my literary history or something by by turning that into something popular is that what's going on i I don't i don't know but i I haven't seen ever a a successful maybe there's too many lecturers out there who who are willing to complain about you know i mean how much we all get together and complain about new translations when they come out and all this sort of thing maybe it's it's too precious to us and we just we just can't stand anybody sullying it you know i've seen so many people get upset about just yeah even just translations and then people get I don't know where you are or how it is with you are but people then just get upset about even people translating why do we have to translate why can't these people just go back and learn it's old english it's easy they can learn that in a few months come on they should be able to read this thing and you know we shouldn't have to teach them at all and I don't know people it's people out there now they can't even read latin and greek what's going on with the world um but maybe it's maybe it's it's carried too much um nationalistic pretension with it to to make that movement into into popular culture
1: and also just the single source manuscript versus Arthuriana is quite open what we would say open universe you know you can add new stories on there right
0: oh that's an interesting, look I hadn't thought of it, but that's a good point that's a really good point you know well I, I've got to say one of the things then oh, I don't know you probably get your listeners looking to lynch me for this one but one of the things I find interesting about Beowulf is um like exactly right. It's a single source. It's a single late source. The whole thing is written in 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 very clearly a 10th century um West Saxon dialect. It's really clear to me. And I gotta say, when I read it in the original, it's also really clear to me it was written by a single individual. Like there's no there's I know the manuscript has evidence of two hands. That's that doesn't mean anything. I don't think it was an ancient book. I don't think it was written hundreds of years before it was. There's no evidence whatsoever of almost anybody in Old England even knowing about this book, you know. I don't find place names. I don't find anyone referencing the heroes in it. We, we get no other reference to this. It just reads to me like a cracking good piece of poetry written by uh, probably a cleric that comes out of that, you know, 10th century Reformation uh, movement um, in England it's um it's got amazing classical references it, it clearly this is a, a a man or a woman who knew their um their um a um, Aeneid. um it, there, there's those sorts of things but it's 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 in their own language um And then it just gets forgotten, you know. I I think it's incredibly telling that the the copy that turns up, the single copy that turns up, has a massive beer stain on it. Someone's put their tankard of beer on that in a monastery somewhere or a tankard of wine or whatever it was, not even worth, you know. And there it sits for hundreds of years until someone, you know, relocates it. And what do they relocate it for? Mainly the stories in the same manuscript, you know, there's other stories of St. Christopher there which are interesting to them. So they, oh, and there's this other poem there. And then it gets turned into this nationalist epic, you know, at, the, at the same time that England is, is trying to say to, its, you know, to everybody, oh, look, we've got our own Iliad. We've got our own, look at this, this is just as good, and we'll, we'll drag that out. And the British Empire is big enough to push this, this idea that this is, a, this is a national epic for us. I'm sure the cleric who wrote in the 10th century never saw that happening with this piece. Don't get me wrong, it's an absolutely sublime poem. But I don't see how it can, you know, carry all this, you know, this, this, these, these national desires with it.
1: I don't wanna get you in trouble, but if I can just ask you, (laughs) what do you think about these theories that maybe Shakespeare had uh, gotten hold of the Beowulf manuscript and read it and uh, tied in some inspiration to Hamlet and things like this? Is this more of the, our contemporary national myth-making or uh, does there- 100%,
0: there's no way. There's just no way. In my mind, look, maybe I'll be shown to be wrong somewhere down the track, but like I've seen that stuff. Let's just be straight. Like let's 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 be honest with this. Um, and in fact, Shakespeare's not really coy about where he's getting his ideas from. Like he's, you know, he, he we can see where he gets his ideas from. Um, we, he doesn't bother changing a lot of stuff um, if, if, he, if he thinks it's good enough, and then he adds to these, you know, where he, he wants to. The Reality is that he is getting his inspiration from the same place that the Beowulf poet got their inspiration from. It's you know, um, they're clearly reading others, um, other literature and they're getting ideas. As I was just saying, with Beowulf, it's really obvious to me with with you know, reading the Aeneid in Latin and then you read um, Beowulf in Old English, you know, the bit around the mire the when he's going in to, to fight Grendel's mother. It's very obvious that he's he's and it's not like he's. It's, he's doing what all good writers do. He's going, oh, he, here's a nod to another. We all know our need. I'm making a nod to that, but I'm taking it in a different place now. You know, that's, that's beautiful. He does that sort of, or she does that sort of thing. Um, but Shakespeare, the ideas that uh, Shakespeare has in common with the Beowulf poet, I think that's because they're getting it from the same ultimate inspiration from somewhere else. Um uh, there's a lot of translations of classical works in in Shakespeare's time, and we know that he's reading those and he's getting ideas. Um, his Latin was was good enough to be be reading um, uh, you know, Latin texts. Uh, he was getting these ideas from there.
1: Yeah, and uh, it, I think we also see a lot of this blending and mixing and matching in medieval comics as well, where it's not just properly medieval, right? They they do jump around.
0: Yeah, absolutely it's it's funny it's a it's a worry for us like there's so much of 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 art that we that you know we look at like so many great that uh, Parts of the canon of Western, you know, art where we look at and we know that they're, you know, they're stealing ideas from here and there, or you know, it's reference. Like that's all we do. And I don't know why people get upset that you know we we muck around with those sorts of things. Think of all the great art you can think of that has you know pictures of of Zeus and Apollo dressed in you know medieval armor, you know, because that's the way they want them to to appear, or or, or Baroque armor, early modern armor, because that's who they're painting for, and like that's that's okay but i don't I think as these things get pushed into a nationalist agenda, everyone starts to talk about purity.
1: And uh, that leads really nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you. So you identified so many elements of these medievalist comics as not being medieval at all. Uh, so for example, Northlanders is uh, uh, having Kung Fu adventure elements and uh, the 1980s feminism of Red Sonia and things like this are all under the banner of medieval. Um, what does this mean uh, can you give us some concrete interpretations or or how we should approach these do readers even notice these things
0: no i don't think they they i don't think they do in fact um i i i have had uh, communication with people who, who disagree with my opinion about northlanders which is um amusing because the, my actual understanding of northlanders comes from the author himself but um the, the reality was that he wanted to sell a, a yakuza you know, a crime, a Japanese crime story to uh the comic book company. And they went, no, nah, we're not doing Japanese crime. Um, all uh indications of market research, say Vikings. And he's saying, like, Oh, I don't want to do this Yakuza thing. Like, no, nope, we'll give you money to do a Vikings thing. And then he went, Well, what if I just imagined <laughs> I'd my Yakuza story and I turned it into a you know Viking story? It work. It's got the same sorts of elements. There's swords, there's lone individuals coming in, you know in a town, blah, blah, yeah, that's what he wanted to do. So we know from, you know, what he said about his own work that that's what he's doing. There's nothing wrong with that, that's that's what artists do. Artists, you know, take from all these different sources um, I've forgotten your question now. <laughs> just went off on a on a tangent. What was I supposed oh, to be that's answering?
1: Okay. Um, just this sort of a uh, general question about how much our readers may be aware of the actual underpinnings. Um, if we can even say there are there are actual underpinnings of things. And you're you're right. Uh, there's really clear statements. Uh, by the people who work on these uh types of comics projects. Um, we can ask, oh, ooh, is our ethereal attempt really real and and things like that but um there are clear statements
0: yeah i don't know there there probably are those um there are there are those people out there too i don't know i i I try not to um i certainly don't want to end up in a a movie theater with uh with those people who sit next to you going no that's the the wrong belt buckle you know um there's those dudes who you know you're watching a tv show and they go oh this is supposed to be eleven twenty seven. Those helmets didn't come into eleven seventy four, and you go really? That's that's what you're going to say about this movie? Um, but there are look, there are people like that, and um, uh, sometimes I can feel like but that myself, I suppose. But I, I, I think everything that we, I don't know what we, I don't know, even know what the point of creating a a completely historical, a completely historical medieval comic would be. Like um, I guess. If you wanted to create a completely historic Beowulf, I would probably say maybe just go read Beowulf because that actually is a completely historic Beowulf. It's of the 10th century and you can you can immerse yourself into that, even though it imagines itself set much further back in the past and imagined past to them. I mean, Beowulf is our imagined past, but what's actually happening in the events to the 10th century writer is imagined in the sixth or fifth century as well. So that's the sort of thing we do. I think we're going to create modern things. We're always going to have an imagined past. We're we're always going to create imagined past, whether it's, you know, a 19th century past or a 15th century past or, you know, two and a half thousand BCE past. That's what we're going to do. So I think just embrace that. I think if you're going to get caught up in um, the historicity of things, it's probably just a waste of everybody's time.
1: And a, a proper medieval comic might might be a little boring with the day to day. <laughs> well,
0: and I wonder what you could do with a proper medieval comic that hasn't been done. Like I think the the reality is sometimes for people, and remember that comics are appealing to a different different crowd often. But the other reality is there's actually like you know there's a ton of great medieval literature written in the Middle Ages. It's it's there. You can just go and access that. There's nothing wrong with with reading these. You know, just go and read them. And these are these are of their time, and and they give you such a sense of it. And I think for for us as academics, sometimes too, if I'm if I'm reading something, I'm reading Marjorie Kemp or Catherine de Pizan, I get a real sense of the era because I've got an authentic voice telling me about what they're experiencing. That's all I need. I you know. If I want medieval, I'll get it from someone who lived in the Middle Ages.
1: And can I ask, do you see similar trends in your work on adaptations of other literatures or eras, uh, For yeah, uh, including more recent histories, getting adapted for some sort of contemporary purpose?
0: I haven't really looked at it. What I've looked at is the the tension between classicism and medievalism. So certainly I've written and published on classical uh, motifs, which come into uh, not just comic books, but also video games um, as another form of popular culture. Another thing that we can monitor because we can see how many um, uh, copies of a video game, like a console game sells. We can see also, you know, if there's online playing, we can see how many people engaging that sort of thing. So again, it's a nice, uh, check of of how popular you know which games sell well which people are, which games are people are buying into which they want to immerse themselves in, um, so I've looked at that as well. Um, so I'm really interested in, in much older things. I'm sure uh, I I can actually think of some I can I can think of some video games that um, sh- people should be looking at. Um, I think anything at real Reloca- like if 19th century there's games which. Um, Imagine the American West, for instance, um, and they would be interesting to look at uh, in terms of the way we want. To, say, Americans might want to create their imagined past from such a uh, relatively recent. Um, but I have looked at lots of classical comics and classic and classical elements that, that seep into um, video games. Uh, but I would say one of the problems is one of the things that I um, have come up with is. Also just actually goes back to the question about Shakespeare in a sense. It's also just that ancient impulse as in, uh, like I mean, in, in a sort of a sense of a, of a signature running through things. When you're looking at the way that people interpret things, is it a conscious reception or is it a, an unconscious reception? Um, if I'm going to do a story about um, a traveller and this traveller goes through all these different adventures am I consciously receiving say the odyssey or is it that the odyssey is so much a part of Western civilization that I can't help, but create an odyssey like story without even thinking about it. And, and one of the articles I published was on, in fact, the silver surfer. So this is a, you know, extraterrestrial superhero um, which uh, comes out of the, uh, the, the, early issues of the fantastic four and uh he's uh he's scouring the universe and to me he's very obviously an odysseus a ulysses analog and i looked at is it a deliberate analog or is it just that that story is so heavily inculcated into western civilization when i do the lone traveler surfing through space he sort of can't be anything but Ulysses, and in the end, I decided that's what was actually happening. I don't think looking at what the authors were saying, I don't think it was conscious at all. They just were so programmed by thousands of years of this reception, they just went, "Oh, that's what's going to that's what's going to look like."
1: And you're right; it would be also very interesting when we can uh, spend more time looking at video game narratives and. Mm. Uh, mm. how, how it manifests there. Totally I published different. on one
0: video game, which is uh, like there's a series of post-apocalyptic games that came out of a Ukrainian company. So these, uh, based on a Russian novel, Metro twenty thirty three, or a series of novels, and um, I was really interested in in that because basically these this it's although it's set in a post-apocalyptic Russia, um, imagining apocalypse uh, in the very near future, but there's a lot of reference to Stalinist architecture and all that sort of thing through it. Now, Stalin, of course, used this neoclassical architecture because, again, if you go back to my earlier thesis, that as nationalism gets abandoned for imperialism, classical uh, motifs are a better way of describing yourself. And I was really interested to see if the use of classical architecture in this post-apocalyptic Russia was a referent to fall of communism or if in fact it was a reference back to ancient classicism and i think that i end up with this whole white noise theory that these things run as impulses through our culture so heavily sometimes people don't even know they're borrowing from it so if i want to do a classical thing said, but yeah at the same time if i want to do medievalist things like uh for western civilization the the impulse of you know um, of the church of Christianity, this is so heavily inculcated. Can I ever really abandon it? It's you know I might want to think that I'm creating this story, but I've been programmed by thousands of years of art and literature to think in a particular way.
1: And if I can ask you a question kind of off the cuff, you mentioned how we use the medieval to imagine our past, uh, to contextualize our present. Uh, What about these comics where the middle ages are placed as a future, usually like a kind of post-apocalyptic future? Is Uh, Could you interpret that for us really quickly? I'm thinking about comics like Mercenaries, Sagrella's Mercenaries, or even like uh, Vampirella is in uh, an outer space, uh, spooky medieval vampire alien. Things like yep, that.
0: Yeah. And there's also imaginations of of Greek and Egyptian, very serious Greek and Egyptian gods in the future as, as it like being all space travellers and all that sort of stuff gets tied in with Eric von Däniken and the whole sort of, you know, that whole sort of mess. Um, actually, I think some Egyptian Egyptian gods, space travellers turn up in Beowulf as, as well. Um, I think that there's two ways of viewing History in the popular sense, and I think people see people are interested in a history of a downward trajectory or an upward trajectory. We like to just, and this is very broad, but I think people like to imagine that we're getting worse or that we're getting better. Um, And having taught history at university for a long time, I've never found anyone who's happy with history just goes on flat. You know, students never want to hear that. They ask me what do I think and I go, I reckon we've pretty much been doing the same stuff forever. Um, and there's just this minor variation, but we just keep doing the same thing over and over again and we never learn from the past and we just keep doing it. Students don't like that one. Most people I think like to think of us getting better and so we like to, you know and and, and so you could take the, uh, utopian medieval past and you could project it into a utopian medievalist future and that's a great place to be or if you want the downward trajectory i'll take my dystopian medieval past and i project it into a dystopian medieval future and lo and behold i've just proved what i always thought was going to happen anyway because that's kind of what humans do you know
1: so kind of that same function but just projected into the future
0: I think, yeah. I don't know how you found it, but I, I find that teaching history, a lot of people aren't aware of how much they want to manipulate history to tell themselves a story about themselves. They so they think that they're there. yeah. They think that they're there to, I want to find out what happened. You go, do you really, or do you just want to make yourself feel better about yourself now? And that's okay. But yeah, let's be honest with it.
1: Full, full disclosure. I was very interested in Renaissance festivals as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so we find ourselves here today <laughs> yeah, so, yeah that's right yeah um, well, I, and look
0: okay and full disclosure I often say mm-hmm. this to my students too like here's the thing okay so I'm talking about this dystopian or these utopian tasks which one I'm, I'm more attracted to um and also which one am I almost programmed to go towards and I, I one of the things I've realized is that um I am programmed towards um utopian medieval past all right and um i think a lot of that is i i've taught at the anu for uh, for a long time but i also taught at catholic uni for a few semesters and i was really interested when i when i started teaching medievalism in the in the course you know so you've got you've got your students there and you go i'm let's let's brainstorm this idea i put medieval up on the board what are your ideas and Inevitably, people go, Oh, uh, sickness, plague, black death, rats, you know. And I'm writing them all up on the board, all the bad things, all the bad things. And I go, Yeah, exactly. So then I will talk about this weird view we have of the past and how it was disabled. I did three semesters teaching at a Catholic uni here in Australia. So I did exactly the same thing, put it up on the board. Okay, so what do you, when I say medieval, what do you think of? And they go, Oh, knights. Nice oh uh, uh maidens um uh the church uh and i was going, wow this is all really positive positive. and then i thought actually yeah because uh, so full disclosure um i'm from a you know catholic background and i realized that i had probably inherited from my you know just a culture around me this sort of oh yeah, this sort of utopic view of, of this age of faith um, when we were simpler and we, you know, all this sort of thing. And we built these wonderful, massive churches, which are these incredible, you know, and, and they are, they're incredible architectural um, uh, phenomena. And so, yeah, I, I think um, we we also have to realise, yeah, we, we did get programmed by these things. So you're saying Renaissance uh, Fairs, like, like, how can you not be attracted to the concept of renaissance? Do you know what I mean? Like it just sounds so perfect and um, the art is so beautiful and um, all these sorts of things. Yeah, I think we we carry this stuff with us and we have to, and I can be sitting there you know, saying, oh, well, we do all these. I do these things too. Like we all do these things. But by understanding our biases, we can possibly be less controlled by them.
1: Uh, and aware of positionality and, and all that yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, can I ask you were there any comics uh comics that you were interested in that you didn't have space to address in the book or that you discovered after writing the book that you think uh would be worthy worthy uh would be interesting for analysis?
0: No, I didn't in the end i i i i kept the the ones I thought really worked worked really well um there were lots of other there were lots of other um uh, comic books which I found interesting for various reasons. Um oh and I suppose some of the things too, like I could have looked at um Neil Gaiman's um Sandman, for instance. That that would have been really good. But plenty have been plenty's been written about that. Um I actually I probably did look. There was a there was a comic book representation of, of um uh, the Elric series, Michael Moorcock's fantasy series. And that would have been interesting. But then I thought, yeah, but is it a comic book or is it a comic version of a of a series of novels and would it be better, you know, uh, studied as a series of novels rather than what well, I get more out of that. So it got shelved off for another project, which <laughs> never got written up um, in that, in the way of things. Um, so there's plenty of other things. And and I, I tell you what, if people out there are looking for projects, there's plenty of projects still to, to be worked on um, and and more stuff every day. more and more titles being done. It'll be harder to tell um, how they're doing uh, in the modern world because we don't have those newspaper stands to, to tell us exact numbers, but there's still plenty of projects to be done. And then you can start looking at that translation of comic projects into into silver screen projects. That would be really interesting as well.
1: Thank you. And uh, to wrap up, could you tell us a little bit about some of the projects you're working on now or some of the things you're excited about, interested in now?
0: I can, I, I, I can, I will. Um, so I'm a bit guarded about it. Look, and that's because, um, I have, uh, radically changed this year. So in terms of projects I'm working on, it's, uh, there's nothing collaborative there. I, uh, finished up at the Australian national university in January of this year. And, um, I have, um, become a lot less interested in the way that universities in Australia, at least are running and, um, I have become very, very interested in in public education, and so I have become a school teacher. <laughs> So um, I'm very interested in working in uh, literacy areas. And so I'm teaching what here is called uh, essential English. So I'm working with people uh, often from non-English speaking backgrounds, um, but also I'm working with uh, a lot of young people from uh, Indigenous backgrounds, uh, First Nations Australians. And um, I that's what I've been working on i don't know if any publications will come out of that at the moment i'm um just working to keep my uh my students in school and to and to you know to give them some options uh, uh once they leave so i'm really excited about it i'm really enjoying it but it's nothing academic but um i just i just got to this point where i um I really love teaching classics and all those sorts of things, but I just thought I wanted to have a, a maybe it's my Catholic, maybe it's, the, it's all the Catholic background, right? It's, it's all the vocational things which the, the brothers and the nuns forced into my head when I was a child and I never noticed, but I felt like I should be doing something broader, I guess. And so I have just started teaching uh, literacy in schools.
1: Will you be using comic books in the classroom?
0: I have already you know I've already done so. <laughs> it's a very and you know what like obviously um there's a lot of comics out there which are still literature and there's also a lot of comics which aren't literature but still teach good literacy skills. And everything we do about film we can do about comics we can and we can develop the same metal language with my students and the big thing the big thing I'm finding I don't want to I don't want to um working with my students i i want to give them the same um, opportunities and so there's no point in in not going into things like metal language explaining how things are done and um, and comics are really good there's there's all sorts of it's everything we can do there and it's it it seems obvious and immediate and accessible so yeah there's there's lots of things we can do anarchist comics deal with all sorts of social issues and we can use them as springboards then off into talking about these sorts of things. And yeah, there's, they're a wonderful resource.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. Well, uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It was a treat to talk to you about this uh, book and this topic. uh, And thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me.